Hello and welcome to the Azure Wrap Podcast, episode 24, Education in Regional Anesthesia. Hello and welcome to the Azure Wrap Podcast. I'm your host today, Raj Gupta, and as always with me is my co-host, Eric Schwank. Eric, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Glad to be here. I just wanted to say thanks to all those who served uh, yesterday in remembrance of Memorial Day and uh, great to be in the podcast again. Yeah, we're recording this on the Tuesday after Memorial Day in the United States. This is a day we commemorate our fallen soldiers over the many years of wars and service that they've provided our country. And so we want to remember those people that served uh, on our behalf and to let us do what we do every day. Um, today, we have uh, three special guests with us that are um, presenting uh, a topic that's related to the education special interest group and their representatives of them. Um, I'm going to get to their introduction in just a minute, but first I want to remind people about a couple things coming up for ASRA. And as always, you can find this information on the ASRA.com website. So first off is the fall pain meeting that's coming around uh, in a few months. It's going to be in San Antonio, November 15th through the 17th. Uh, I, I'm actually going to go this year. I, I usually miss this meeting for a variety of reasons, um, but uh, this year I'm planning on going, so I'm excited to see what the fall pain meeting is like. I usually go to the spring meeting. Um, but uh, if you're interested in this pain meeting, there is an abstract submission deadline on September 5th, 2018. So make sure if you're working on a project right now, you start writing and putting your abstract together and submit that. Um, we'd love to have your abstract at that fall pain meeting and opportunity to present that. Uh, research. Second of all is the spring regional anesthesia and acute pain meeting that's coming up in April 11th through the 13th uh, of next year. That's going to be at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. We would love to see you there. I'm in charge of that meeting and we've put together a pretty great program. We're kind of refining the details of that program right now and we would love to have all of you guys there. Uh, I think that's going to be a fantastic meeting. We've had great momentum with the spring meetings over the last few years and um, I'm excited to see everybody's contribution for that meeting. So without further ado, let's get to our introductions today. Um, we have with us, first off, is uh, Colin McCartney. You guys have heard him before on the podcast. He's the Chair of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine at the University of Ottawa in Ontario, Canada. He's also the Chair of the Esh Education Special Interest Group of ASRA. Colin, how are you today? I'm great, thanks, Raj. Um, Thanks for having me on again. It's great to be here. Yeah, I hope you guys are enjoying spring finally up in Canada. I think that's uh, starting to warm up. Yeah, the igloo's finally melting <laughs> and uh, it's up, you know, so yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And then uh, second, we have Jaime Ortiz. Jaime is uh, an associate professor of anesthesiology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Jaime is also uh, the representative of the Education SIG, who's going to be handling podcasts and new content. So Jaime's perfect guest for us today. Jaime, how are you today? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for helping put this together. And I think this will be officially the inaugural podcast that's um, done specifically for the education sick. So uh, thanks for everybody for joining this morning. Yeah, and we have a lot of ideas about how to get the education SIG folks uh, involved in podcasting, whether it's on this channel or a new separate channel. We're still discussing how that's all going to work out, but I think you're going to be hearing from Jaime more and more. Um, and then uh, our third guest today is Danielle Ludwin. Danielle is an associate professor of anesthesiology at Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City. And Danielle is also on my planning committee for the spring meeting, so I'm excited to have Danielle with me today. Danielle, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
And I think we're going to have a great discussion. And Danielle has been so kind. She's on vacation today, and she still logged in and uh, decided to join us. So we really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks. So um, for today's topic, we're going to talk a little bit about what the Education Special Interest Group, the SIG, that we what we call it, uh, ASRA, what the special interest group is and why it's uh, valuable to the ASRA members. So this is a, a free uh, community of people that you can join if you're an ASRA member, and this is something that you can attend during the ASRA meetings, but also communicate and be part of throughout the year. Colin, why don't you briefly tell us uh, what the education SIG is and what you guys are aiming towards achieving for ASRA? Yeah, thanks, Raj. Um, yeah, the uh, the SIG is now, I think, uh, just about a year old or over a year old. Um, the initial uh, concept for the Special Interest Group for Education and Regional Anesthesia was really to create a forum for a group of individuals who are passionate about advancing both the science and practice of how we educate colleagues in regional anesthesia. Um, so the, the prime motivation for me to develop the SIG, in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, was really sort of to further develop the, ed the research base around education and regional anesthesia. I kind of stemmed off um, an editorial that Ed Mar Mariano and I wrote in RAPM over a year ago now, or two years ago, just talking about you know how we've we've, we've come a, a ways in terms of determining the science of, of, of uh, teaching regional anesthesia, but we've got a long way to go. Um, and so the, in, in, in the last year, we've had an incredible um, response to, to, to members who want to be involved in the SIG. We've got over 1,400 members now. Um, some of the prime reasons and prime, or the prime reasons for the SIG's uh, existence are once, once again, just to advance the science of, of how we study, or of how we uh, teach people regional anesthesia. So uh, we're very lucky to have Alwyn Chuan, who's our, um, who's our lead for, for research. Um, in the SIG, and, and Alwyn's already developed a number of research studies. We've got one collaborative research study going on uh, around the world at the moment involving education regional. Uh, and Alwyn has also recently done a Delphi study and, uh, uh, and a systematic review looking at education regional anesthesia, uh, which, will, which will further assist uh, both the society and our members. Um, and then other areas of, uh, of the SIG, which are, are important, um, CME, Stuart Grant's currently leading our CME uh, group, and, and one of Stuart's goals is to develop uh, resources for SIG members and other members to, to help them with education in regional anesthesia. Uh, an example would be Stuart's just, just developed some resources which have been posted on the website on things like how to be a good moderator uh, and other subjects like that. Um, Brian, Dr. Brian Allen is leading our, our website and um, uh, helping to sort of create a useful website for SIG members, including some of the resources I've already talked about, including how to get involved in research. And then Dr. Jaime Yorta's uh, uh, helping us with, with our podcast, one of which uh, obviously we're, we're doing at the moment, and uh, very grateful to Jaime for all, all his work in these areas. Finally, uh, Adam Jacob has uh, taken on the lead role for the newsletter, and, um, and we publish a, a quarterly newsletter for the SIG, uh, with some of the pieces in that newsletter going into the Azure newsletter as well. So all in all, um, you know, uh, together with myself, uh, who currently chairs the, the SIG, and Reva Ram Logan, um, who's our vice chair, um, we've got a great group of, of people who've, uh, who are doing a lot of work for the special interest group at the moment. And, uh, uh, you know, so in terms of, you know, um, for, for other members, you know, I'd, I'd 
love to have other people who want to contribute to the SIG, either in terms of articles or, or people who might be interested in contributing to a podcast or, or getting involved in the collaborative study. So feel free to email me or, or, or uh, contact me through the ASRA office if you're interested. And, uh, um, and also in, uh, stepping up for leadership positions as well. The, um, uh, the liaison committee leads at the moment are, will, will, are, are t t term limited or time limited terms. So there'll be opportunities for people to step up into those positions as well and, and, and further help the SIG in years to come. So, so that's basically a, a not so quick summary. Excellent. Uh, this is Eric again. Um, I just wanted to ask, I guess I'll start with uh, Jaime and then Danielle, you can answer as well. Um, how difficult do you guys feel it is to uh, study education in regional anesthesia? It seems like it would be, uh, to me, somewhat of a, a difficult topic to actually uh, truly study. I think the problem with uh, education research in general is a lot of, a lot of us come up with ideas of, of newer, potentially better ways to do something. But in order to public, pub, uh, public publish somebody's articles, <clears throat> you actually have to follow the data years out, you know, so two or three years after teaching residents, maybe when they're even out in practice, to actually uh, be able to fully assess whether your intervention or not actually made a difference. So it's really difficult. I think a lot of times when we get new ways of doing things and new ideas, we try to implement them right away and see how they work. And obviously doing actual research that way, it's not uh, optimal. I agree with what Jaime said. I think many of our education research studies look at did the intervention work a week later, a month later, if, if it's a more longitudinal study, maybe a year later, but really looking at our residents and fellows, you know, where are they in their practice several years later is really an interesting question and, and obviously more challenging to study. So we have a we have a few articles that um, I'll put links to in the show notes for this. Um, but some of the articles are discussing um, retrospective evaluation of uh, of how people learn, and then some are prospective. Um, I'm guessing you guys are talking about prospective studies to look at uh, how people do with different training modalities. Um, are, are retrospective um, modalities a useful way of looking at this problem? Danielle, why don't you go to that one? Sure. I mean, I think the more information we have helps us. Retrospective, again, the, the issue is if you're going to also ask people, okay, who are in practice, who are doing lots of regional anesthesia, how did you learn? Obviously, there's going to be some memory bias potentially in, in how they were taught as opposed to looking at it prospectively. Uh, again, it gives us a little bit more information to understand, and I think Jaime mentioned this already, there are different type of learner styles, so it can be hard to extrapolate what works for certain types of learners uh, compared to others. I, I can say in my own experience, I think that the residents who become most competent at regional anesthesia during the residency, I think there is a, a self-motivation factor that the residents who are very motivated, who um, who are typically going on to private practice settings, although not always, seem to be really vested in their experience and making sure that they feel comfortable at the conclusion of their rotation. I think sometimes, and this is something we, we strive to improve, 
is for those residents who maybe are going to continue on in an academic setting, don't always take that same ownership over their rotation. That's interesting. Um, Jaime, any other thoughts? I had another uh, question in the back of my mind, but before we moved on, I wanted to see if you had anything to add. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the main issue with you know retrospective studies regarding education is that a lot of learners have different baselines. Uh, I think you know six, seven, eight years ago, it was not common for every medical student or every resident, even other specialties, to have ultrasound available to do other procedures also. And I think now sometimes we have some of our first year residents who have a lot of experience using ultrasound for line placement, central lines, A lines. So that experience still varies quite a bit. And you can have a lot of residents with good skills starting learning regional versus people who never really used ultrasound much or other techniques before. I, th I think that is uh, actually an issue as well is that, um, you know, sometimes our residents are more competent than our staff in, in these areas um, because, you know, staff people may have uh, done residency in a time well before the, the advent of ultrasound. So that creates a difficulty, I think, for some residents who may want to do procedures or, or interventions or, or, um, or, or even just um, diagnostic studies with ultrasound. Um, and they might be on with a staff person who doesn't feel competent, competent to supervise them. So it's, that's, that's a sort of transition period that we're currently working through. Absolutely. That, I know at, at Jefferson, uh, you know, we, we deal with some of those uh, same issues, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, peripheral blocks, maybe in the weekends or the nights and so forth. And you have a, an upper level resident who's done a lot of blocks and stuff. Um, I wanted to uh, switch gears to something. Um, there's uh, simulation and anesthesia is uh, kind of a, a little bit of a hot topic and increasing in its uh, use across the country. And uh, going back to something that Jaime and I were talking about um, off offline before we started up is this whole uh, process where you have, let's say you have a, a resident maybe for a month uh, on a regional anesthesia or orthopedic rotation and the first couple blocks typically, you know, the uh, as faculty members will demonstrate proper technique and so forth. And then after a couple, the, all of a sudden you're halfway you're through the, uh, the rotation and then you just make this sort of awkward transition to the resident placing the block having, you know, very little uh, experience with the, the hands on and, and visualizing the needle. And I'm just wondering how you guys have seen uh, what experience you have and what seems to work in terms of getting residents um, to make that transition from observing to do one, you know, the old see one, uh, do one, teach one, but I'm not sure that really worked for the blocks before. Um, what are your thoughts, Colin, on that issue? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, you know, I think the practice in most institutions when you, when you ask people around the country is we're still, you know, the, we're still in in that old model of the resident comes on first day of regional rotation and they they haven't done any um, you know placement of of uh, techniques before in any sort of model prior to coming on the rotation so they literally are learning as they go um, but if we look at you know surgery for example most surgical residencies these days have a sort of boot camp type format to uh, to get surgeons started on the hand-eye coordination skills um, prior to coming to the operating room and that really accelerates their progress uh, in terms of being able to learn new techniques. Um, in fact, I think one of the surgical uh, conferences has a, um, 
almost like a sort of uh, a simulation competition with different teams from different programs competing against each other to see who can do a laparoscopic procedure in the fastest time on a simulator, which is kind of an interesting concept that we might want to think about for Azra. Um, but it's, um, I, I think, you know, that there are studies as well that have shown that a very small amount of pre, um, pre or preparation um, coming into your rotation can significantly advance your ability to be successful. You know, there's a study by, uh, uh, from Toronto Western, um, I think about 10 years ago now, in fact, or maybe slightly less, where they, they showed that a, a very small amount of pre-rotation uh, simulation on, a, on, a, on an agar model or a, a gel model actually significantly advanced success with an auxiliary block. So uh, I think we're, we're moving to a time where we do need to be, uh, you know, asking our residents to do this sort of preparation before they come into the uh, operating room. Yeah, one of the articles um, that is in the list is by um, Summer Naruz, and they have a simulation device that's pretty uh, fancy. It's got this uh, mannequin that they use with a gel model and, um, you know, feedback loops with uh, LEDs and, uh, uh, you know, buzzers and things like that if they're getting close. And they show significant improvement in block performance um, with repetition on there. But at the same time, like you mentioned, Colin, back, you know, I, I think Brian Seitz over a decade ago showed that a little tiny phantom gel um, practice, even, you know, 10 or 15 uh, trials by a novice learner showed pretty marked improvement with that. I think there's a fear um, by a lot of institutions to invest in complex, expensive simulations when actually just something that allows for non-stressful, non-direct patient interaction practice actually speeds up their, uh, the learning of a, a, a um, novice pretty quickly. And there's been multiple studies to show that. Um, Danielle, do you think there's a resistance to simulation still or is, are people starting to adopt this? I think simulation really is growing and interest in it is growing. And just like uh, you guys had mentioned earlier, as access to ultrasound increases, so it's not just used for regional procedures, it's used for lines, it's used for um, exams, for perioperative um, assessment of patients. I think simulation, at least um, in our institution, has expanded. Uh, and once there's more access to a sim center and, and um, but I agree with you, you can even do something as ba super basic. It doesn't have to be as complex uh, to give, to give trainees the experience of, of what it is like to do blocks in a, in a non patient environment and to have that teaching piece. Do you guys do anything, Danielle there? I mean, what do you guys do for your trainees? We have been using, although this podcast is uh, making me think if we should be incorporating uh, new ways of using simulation, we use simulation more for an assessment of our residents um, as the rotation is progressing. So it is an opportunity for them to get feedback, but we're not using it in a pre-rotation format. And, and, and now I'm thinking maybe that's something we should be considering as, as a way to get our, our residents um, more comfortable. Now, one thing I will say that we have that's worked very nicely is we do have a block area where patients, uh, the majority of the time, get their uh, regional anesthetics in the preoperative area. So we do have more time for placement of blocks and for teaching. 
so that model has worked well for us, but of course, possibly we can do it even better. Jaime, how about you guys? What do you do there in Houston? So we have a, a, a pretty involved simulator, you know, where we do a lot of different, obviously, type of anesthesia scenarios uh, along the way over the course of a year. Um, a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, we got a series of gel models, a little bit more involved than the usual ones that we can easily get uh, with that you could image. It looks like almost a nerve. Uh, it looks like almost a patient's leg, for example. And I've used them on and off a few times. They're not great, but I agree that the actual practice of placing the needle under the probe into an object towards a target definitely helps the residents improve uh, along the way. Our actual simulator is pretty off-site as far as where our clinical sites normally are. So a lot of times we have our um, different groups of residents over the course of the year who attend the simulator. And along the way, with the other experiences they get in the simulator lab during that day, they get to practice a little bit regional. Um, I've also sort of added that part of the experience to our senior residents, CA3s, when they rotate and do a uh, regional anesthesia lecture day where I actually, you know, go through that with them. Uh, but people don't get, I would say, enough exposure to it. Everybody gets it at least once or twice uh, over the course of the three years. So you could definitely, we wish we could spend more time with them in the simulator, but due to clinical responsibilities and issues along the way, that it's difficult enough to get residents out of clinical duties for even didactics sometimes, uh, depending on what site they're working at, uh, it makes it more complicated. That's the problem we, we have, too, is just when do you actually get them out? Do you pull them out? I mean, we had a program in, here at uh, Jefferson where we uh, typically they would have their acute pain rotation the month before, which would afford some time in the afternoon where we would have the uh, regional fellow go through with the resident, uh, maybe a half hour with the gel phantoms and the rotation prior to the regional. And that was working great until they changed the order up. And then all of a sudden it doesn't really seem to work out as well. What about uh, Colin, how, how are things in Ottawa regarding uh, simulation? Do you do anything before their uh, rotation for them? Yeah, they, we, we actually moved um, just over three years ago now to a, a completely different residency program, um, which is basically, it's competence-based as opposed to time-based now in, in Ottawa. And so our residents for the first six months of their residency program, they have, I think it's three days a week in the simulator. So it's a huge amount of time in the simulator in the first part of their residency. And as part of that, they do neuraxial and some peripheral nerve simulation. Um, but it's still, I think the peripheral nerve amount is still fairly minimal. Um, uh, but it, but it's, a, it's a big increase in, in terms of simulation time as part of a sort of overall boot camp approach. Um, but you know, could we do more peripheral nerve? I think we could. I think some of the, the reasons we're having trouble at the moment not just in our program, but in many programs, is that we're, you know, if you look at the curricula for for um, anesthesia, and you look at regional anesthesia, we're trying to teach, you know, twenty or thirty techniques to to our residents within within a very short period of time, and I think we're really just trying to do too much. We should probably really fine tune the sorts of techniques we're trying to teach and and get residents to competence in those areas. Realize and, and also maybe just give them a, a foundation for learning further techniques in their practice if they have interest, rather than trying to teach them how to do 30 techniques at a very superficial level. Let me just comment quickly on what Colin said. At our institution, we've um, uh, kind of tried to spread out the learning over three years um, a little bit more purposefully. Actually, we spread it out over four years. So we have categorical interns and we actually bring them 
um, in their intern year on our perioperative care month, which is our sort of ERAS protocol uh, service line. And in that month, they overlap in the same room as our acute pain service regional team, and we get them introduced with fascial plane blocks. And the idea being is that as an intern, they're learning some of the hand-eye coordination uh, without actually approaching target nerves, staying away from major vessels, um, and doing relatively straightforward abdominal wall blocks and things like that. So by the time they show up as a CA1 on the acute pain service, they're ready to kind of move up quickly they come back through as a CA2 and as a CA3 on various rotations. So by combining all those teams into one place, we have overlap and opportunity to educate them piecemeal, but with some repetition over four years. And we find that, that their proficiency gets uh, pretty high quickly um, early on in their training, and then we can move on to the more complex procedures. So I think finding a way to stratify what is our, our new stratification of simple and more complex blocks when you include some of these fascial plane blocks, I think creates an opportunity as well that we didn't have before. Eric, I'll jump to you after that. I know you had a question. Yeah, no, I, and I just wanted to just a uh, quick word following up from that. Uh, Colin and I and, and Ed and, and you, Raj, on a podcast about education a while back had, had talked about the fact that I think we're probably doing too many blocks. And we said, you know, why don't we pick you know, I don't I don't have a number necessarily in mind, but why don't we pick a core of like maybe five blocks or something that we feel every resident should be very good at. And then maybe the rest, you know, is just something you're going to do if you're able to dedicate additional time or maybe there's some of those are fellow level blocks rather than know 25 different blocks and not really be good at any of them in particular. Um, but what I wanted to go to was to uh, to ask, I guess, the guests today what they think about the biggest needs in terms of research and regional education. I mean, obviously, there's a lot still to be studied. What are the uh, biggest things that somebody thinking about uh, doing research and regional education uh, should be thinking about? Um, Colin, I guess you can jump to you first if you had to pick uh, maybe two things. Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know, in the podcast already, we've identified about 10 different questions. Uh, you know, that's that's one of the, the reasons I think that the SIG is so important is because there are, it's really a, a totally undeveloped area in terms of identifying, the, 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 even identifying the key questions uh, that we need to be asking. Now, um, Alwyn Chuan did a, a really nice Delphi um, study about nine months ago now, and he, he had, he developed with a group of 30 or 40 um, experts, um, a list of the key um, questions that uh, that we need to be looking at in, in regional anesthesia education. And some of them include things like, you know, things that we've touched already. Um, how long does learning persist? You know, if you go to a, a weekend workshop and you learn how to do a bunch of techniques, does, does that give you actual competence in practice? Or And if it does, how long does it last for? Same with our residents. Um, you know, there was some of the core questions include things like what blocks do we need to be teaching our residents and, and uh, in order to, uh, to get a baseline level of competence. Other things like um, does gaining competence in, say, an auxiliary block give you a similar level of competence or some competence in doing a different technique at a different anatomical level? Um, you know, th those are some of the sort of key questions that have come up. But there's, there's a, that publication hopefully is going to be submitted very soon uh, by Alwyn and, uh, um, and you know, there are about 20 or 30 core questions that we need to start working on in the next couple of years. 
And this is where I would encourage anybody that's interested in joining the SIG or any SIG member who's interested in develop in helping with collaborative research. I think Alwyn's developed a, a sort of very collaborative model for how we we recognize uh, all of the hard work that people are putting into that. So if, if you're interested, let me know or Alwyn know and it'd be great to have you involved. Jaime, why don't you go to that? Yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess the ultimate question is how do you assess proficiency in any given technique? Um, is it the number of blocks that you do? Is it whether or not you can do a block completely by yourself as a resident that is successful? Uh, you know, how do we assess that specific uh, measure? Uh, so if you want to do uh, educational research, you sort of have to decide what are the most important things to look for to make sure that a resident is graduating and is comfortable doing an scaling block, ephemeral block, a puppeteer block, a tap block, those kind of things on their own without our assistance, without us telling them exactly where to put the needle, for example. Uh, and that's very difficult, I think. Uh, to figure out the exact way to measure that. Yeah, my colleague uh, Brian Allen and I have been sitting here debating over the last few years, how do we do that assessment here? He created this elaborate checklist that was about two pages long. We had a debate about whether we videotape the trainees doing procedures in a simulation or we have an observer that's doing it in real time but is not responsible for the block. Um, you know, all kinds of ways of trying to do assessments and then how do you do that repeatedly in enough number of times that you don't get an extraneous assessment and then you know how do you not bias the performer because they're being observed so these variables just keep building up and building up and um, doing that assessment cleanly has been a challenge um, and especially on top of that we're still maintaining a very busy clinical practice and so it's not like we have a bunch of free people standing around to do observations all the time Danielle, what do you think about research and education in this field? What's what's needed? Well, I think you you all have really identified the main challenges, and and I think it goes back to also being pragmatic, as you've mentioned. How do we make sure our learners are competent in performing regional anesthesia, and how do we provide high level care, and where do we find the time if we can to do simulation before and how do we measure it? So there, there are so many questions and and I think it, it's it's challenging for because it's not it's not an easy answer. I, I do like and I think this could be very important, as Colin mentioned, is with this SIG trying to have um, a group that's gonna look at it in a collaborative approach. Because I think that really can have an impact as opposed to just saying at one institution, this is how we do it and this is how it works best. How can we look at a variety? Because if we if were able to do it in a, in a collaborative way across multiple institutions, that would account for different learning styles. Perhaps we can come to a consensus, although I think this is very challenging, of what blocks must residents know. And... But we'll have to make some, you know, to, to do, to carry on the research, you have to ask the questions, but then you have to also be willing to decide where you're going to draw boundaries because you can't look at everything. You can't have, like you mentioned, a two-page checklist might be feasible, but it may not be if you're really trying to assess a lot of learners. So I think that's the challenge in research is what are the questions you want to an answer and how do you do it in a feasible pragmatic way that you can 
do it at, at a lot and, and get the numbers to really look at a variety of settings and a variety of learners. There are there are a number of questions to be asked, um, but I, I, I'm very optimistic because we you know we have like I say 1,400 members of the of the society that are interested in this area, and, and even if 10% of those individuals were interested in uh, in collaborating in, in some research, I mean we've got. Uh, with the first study that our one has developed, I think we've got four or five centers contributing to that now. And um, uh, so that, that in itself has allowed us to put together a study in medical students, which has is, is pulled together a large number of subjects in a very short period of time. So, you know, potentially with a collaborative approach, we could answer a lot of these questions, you know, within sort of five years, um, if we if we do, if we work well together. And I, you know, I think Part of that is going to be the leadership of, of how we pull that together. I think people like Alwyn, uh, you know, and, and Jaime, Brian, and others, uh, Weaver in the group, and um, are a great sort of leadership group. We we need others who want to step up, but um, but I think there's, you know, we have a lot of people who are interested. So uh, I'm very optimistic about how we do this in the future. So I'll throw one other piece of uh, question or suggestion to the group. Um, and this is both to whoever's listening, but also to the three of you guys here as part of the education SIG. I think we have focused our entire conversation about education in this area on trainees, but actually there's a whole group of people out there um, already in practice that either didn't have an opportunity to get training during their residency program or um, or it wasn't adequate for the types of regional being performed now. And how do you train, I think Colin hinted at this about weekend workshop kind of situation where how do you train those people that are in a busy private practice or even an academic practice where they don't have a strong regional program to provide mentorship? How does ASRA take the lead role in, in providing training for those people, assessment for those people, maintenance of education for those people? Um, and I don't think that the the research on education in regional anesthesia has focused on that group of practitioners much at all, um, and they have a unique set of challenges as far as observation and assessment because they don't have a, a supervisor necessarily looking over their shoulder pr providing these blocks. And one thought that I've always had that I don't know how to do, but I've always wondered if there's a way to do this, is we've got uh, an organization with tremendous ability and skill level is you know, I've always wondered if ASRA could create a consulting service, basically, that somebody could be hired out to go to that person's institution for a week and observe their practitioners and provide tips and pointers instead of them coming to a workshop. It's flipping that concept of education around or even doing that right after a workshop. So they get training and then you go two, three weeks, four weeks later and see if they've sustained any kind of education from that workshop. Um, just throwing that out there to the group for the education sake, but also anybody listening about, you know, possible solutions to really looking at how do we maintain this education throughout training and then into the private practice or academic practice as people have to do this years later. Um, uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, Colin, if somebody wants to join the SIG who is not yet a member, how, how does that person go about doing that? You just go to the ASRA website or put in uh, ASRA Education SIG on on, uh, on your search engine, and that should take you directly to the page. And if you're an ASRA member, it's free to join up. Excellent. It's that easy. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that um, people ask us, you know, why should I be an ASRA member? 
Uh, I hope you could see the beautiful value of this organization when you see stuff like the Education SIG, and this is one of many special interest groups that ASRA has. It's not an extra cost. Once you're a member, you can join one of these special interest groups, and it's a great avenue for somebody who's motivated to make a name for themselves in this organization and start collaborating with people like Jaime and Colin and uh, and Danielle across institutions and doing a research project or coming up with ideas and a new protocol or a new uh, standard. Um, you know, people always ask, how do I get involved in the organization? Well, this is a perfect example. So um, go find out about it. Go to Azra.com to find out about the education SIG and all of what they're doing and become part of it. I think that's a great opportunity for everybody to um, make a name for themselves and represent what they can do. So I want to wind up today. Um, this has been a great conversation. Uh, like I said, like uh, Colin mentioned already, you can go to the uh, Azra.com website and look up the Education SIG for all of what they're doing. Um, I think they have a newsletter that you can subscribe to if you're um, uh, if you're so inclined and find out what uh, keep up to date with their research projects and uh, CME projects and all the different work that they're doing. Like I said at the beginning, go to Azra.com to look up for the meetings that are coming up in the fall and the spring of next year um, in San Antonio and then Las Vegas. And most importantly, if you're at one of these meetings and you see us, come say hi. We love meeting you. I can't tell you how uh, how invigorating that was when Eric and I got to meet some of the people that listened to the podcast over the last couple of years and actually came up and said, hi, I listened to you. I'm going to give a shout out to our new friend, Amit Pawa, out in uh, in England, he said that he uh, falls asleep listening to us. Uh, I, I don't know if that was a compliment or an insult, but <laughs> he said he, he, I, he did reassure me that if he forgot some of what he heard, he listens to it again in the morning. So that's <laughs> that's reassuring. He'll be happy to hear that we mentioned his name, but he's got to listen all the way through the end to, to hear his name get called out. But if you're at the meetings and you have a chance to come see us, come see us and um, say hi. We love talking to you. Um, if you go to iTunes and uh, see the reviews and comments section, uh, give, give us a rating. We'd love to see five-star ratings. That helps more people see us and find us. And then the comments help a tremendous amount. So even a single sentence um, says a lot about uh, our organization and this effort. So, Also, if you're, uh, if, if you're not an Apple user, if you're a, an Android user, if you go to uh, Azra.com and you click on Journal and News, you can also find the uh, – links to the podcast there you don't necessarily have to get it through yeah iTunes. that's that, you're absolutely correct there's a million ways to get this podcast so don't, don't uh, think that you have to be on itunes or apple or anything like that um, we make all the different feeds available or you can just direct download the mp3 files so um, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to find us and and listen um, we're going to keep going next month and uh, have some more content for you guys. So keep listening in. And I want to thank all our guests today. Jaime, Danielle, Colin, thank you so much thank for you joining for us. Pleasure. All right. Bye, everyone.